Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, as always, Kerry Parker. Uh, we've got a bunch of news for you this week. Uh, having two weeks in a row of the interviews left us with lots of things to catch up on. Of course, I talked a little bit last week uh, about the new Windows wormable virus. I'll touch base on that a little bit today because there's kind of an extension to that story. Uh, we'll also talk about a new tough privacy law that just got signed into law in Maine, uh, which is great, and we'll talk about that. Uh, we'll talk about some really cool privacy features that Apple just announced at their Worldwide Developers Conference last week, uh, coming in iOS 13, the, the latest version of the operating system that runs on your iPhones and iPads, and that will be debuting probably in September when they release the new iPhones. So uh, we'll talk about some of those really cool features. Uh, as a flip side and a counter counterbalance to that, there are some other articles that have come out lately that have not been so flattering uh, for Apple privacy. We're going to talk about those as well. Try to be fair and balanced here. Uh, I'll will again update you on this Blue Keep thing, the the Windows uh, uh, wormable virus, and this new thing called Gold Brute, uh, which is related uh, in that they that this is another attack against the same Windows service, uh, but in a different way. We'll talk about that. And finally, we're going to talk about the differences between Chrome and Firefox, and two very interesting stories that show the kind of the dichotomy, the balance, the the way in which Firefox and Chrome compare in terms of privacy and why I've been pushing Firefox. And, and that will lead to an unsurprising tip of the week. So without further ado, let's get into the news. All right, first up, there's a new law of the land in Maine. That was just signed into law by the governor there, and I want to read you a little uh, article about it from The Hill, and then I'll explain a little bit about it after I read the article. So, from the article, it says, Maine Governor Janet Mills signed into law one of the nation's strongest privacy bills on Thursday, banning Internet service providers, or ISPs, from using, selling, or distributing consumer data without their consent. The act to protect the privacy of online consumer information would prohibit any ISPs in Maine from refusing to serve a customer, penalizing them, or offering a discount in order to pressure consumers into allowing the ISP to sell their data. The law will take effect July 1st. Maine is one of the first states to take that step after California passed its own strict privacy law last year, setting off a flurry of industry lobbying and praise from privacy activists like me. Maine's law passed amid pushback from top ISPs, is geared toward those such as AT&T and Spectrum. And, of course, Comcast and Verizon and all those others. All those are ISPs. California's law, meanwhile, also applies to tech companies, including Google, Microsoft, Amazon, and Facebook. Some privacy advocates have described the main law as even stronger than California's because it mandates that ISPs require explicit consent from consumers to sell their personal data, while the California law requires consumers to request that their data not be sold by their own volition. The main law is modeled after a former Federal Communications Commission, or FCC, measure that was nullified by President Trump in 2017. It blocks ISPs from selling customers' personal data from third parties, which is not currently prevented at the federal level. Supporters of the bill have pointed to instances in which large ISPs have sold their customers' real-time location data to third parties, saying the companies need to be better regulated. The main privacy law comes as lawmakers on Capitol Hill seek to hammer out the country's first comprehensive privacy bill. Republicans and top industry lobbyists have argued that any federal bill should override state laws in order to avoid a patchwork of privacy laws that would be difficult for tech companies to navigate. Democrats have said they are open to preempting state laws as long as the national bill offers strong privacy protections. All right, so a couple things to unpack there. 
So first of all, and it's key to realize that we had these protections set to go into set to go into effect already uh, under Obama and with the FCC. They had actually put in a federal wide ban on this sort of data use by ISPs, and the Trump administration struck that down. Well, actually, the Trump the the uh, FCC chairman Ajit Pai, appointed by the Trump administration, struck that down. Uh, and so that's basically left open the need for that legislation again. And California rose to the occasion and created a really good privacy bill last year. And now Maine has followed suit with a similar bill of its own. And, you know, because we we had federal regulations, you know, so these these lobbyists that are complaining, well, we need a we need a federal law. We had one and it was struck down. So the states are picking up the slack, basically. And we talked about this with David Reese um, in the in the interview. And yeah, it, it, it is difficult to have this patchwork of, of stuff. But when you, you can't at one point say, well, we need a federal law because we don't want these individual ones and then strike down the federal law. So, you know, that's kind of what you're going to get. So, yes, we, we do need a federal law. And that, as David Reese said, that needs to be a floor, not a ceiling. So there should be minimum standards set at the federal level that everybody can um, have a, like a lowest common denominator. Uh, but then, you know, individual states should be allowed to take that further if they don't feel a federal law goes far enough. At least that's, of course, my view. Lobbyists, of course, I'm sure would disagree. Um, but, uh, you know, as I brought up also in our talk with David Reese, it's not like these companies like Facebook and Google only have to deal with state regulations. They're global companies. They've got to deal with laws that are different all over the planet. So this would not be the first instance in which they would have to, you know, make special considerations for certain locations. And, you know, if they really want to do it right, what they need to do is they just need to <laughs> honor your privacy everywhere on the planet, and then it won't be an issue. The real-time location thing we've talked about on this show, too, and that was, you know, they got they got caught. And, and they said they were, you know, keeping it private or, you know, trying to restrict access to it. But in reality, they were selling it to these third parties, and these third parties were very loose about it. And, you know, for a couple hundred bucks, you could go to these companies and basically track anybody. So, you know, they've they've since tried to clamp down on that. I think there's going to be some federal hearings on that as well. There should be that that, that should never have been allowed to happen in the first place. Um, so but the fact is, there's just there's no regulations around this. There's nothing preventing these things aren't illegal. They just are embarrassing when they get caught doing it. So uh, anyway, the main law is good. I'm glad to see it. Uh, there will be more. Hopefully the government, federal government can work out some stuff. And the only problem is that, you know, I don't know how we're going to get it through the Senate or get it signed by this president. But uh, we need to keep pressing on this, and you can push your representatives and say, I want my privacy, and I don't want my ISP tracking me. Your internet service provider, by definition, can track everything you do because everything you do on the internet, you have to do through them. So unless you're using a VPN or encrypted connections, and even in, with encrypted connections, there's still metadata that leaks. They know what websites you're going to. They just don't know what you're telling them or what they're telling you. So anyway, uh, we need more regulation uh, and um because otherwise it's just a wild west and and to make money these you know these companies are there to make money and they will do everything they can to make more money that's how they enrich their shareholders and you know you can't really blame them for doing that so we really need to set down some some basic guidelines that say okay you know you can make money but you can't do it at the expense of users privacy one more thing I'll mention really quick and I just mentioned it quickly because it's still it's uh, still kind of getting debated in Congress and it hasn't finalized into a, uh, crystallized into a final form yet. But um, one of the biggest complaints to the FCC, I think the biggest complaint to the FCC for many years now is robocalls. We all get them, right? These are these calls that appear to be from, you know, somewhere nearby because it has the same area code, maybe even the same station code with, you know, or says unknown or whatever. It's so easy to spoof caller ID these days. Um, 
So there are some laws that are making their way. There's a, there's a law that just got passed in, um, in the house. I believe it was the house. Um, and they would need to go to the Senate and the Senate is working on their own version of this bill. But basically what it comes down to is that it enables technologies that at least makes it a lot harder to spoof your calling number. Um, it makes it uh, a lot easier for the, the phone companies, wireless and wired to be able to verify that the, that the number they're getting and presenting to you as the caller ID is a valid number and who it belongs to. Um, so it's not, these bills, you know, as, you know, as good as they are and as welcome as they will be to have still won't block this. Uh, however, these bills are also giving more power to these phone companies to allow them to do more blocking automatically on your behalf. Um, so uh, anyway, that kind of leads nicely into the next uh, round of stories, and that is Apple's Worldwide Developer Conference was last week. It's an annual conference they have for their software developers uh, where they announce a lot of new features coming up in uh, their various, they've got many different operating systems. They've got an operating system for your phone, one for your iPad, one for your Mac computers, uh, one for your Apple TV. They've got, they've got several. Um, and they announced several privacy-related features. Apple's really kind of doubling down on the whole privacy thing, which is great. Um, I really appreciate that they're doing that. They're not perfect, though, and we're going to talk about some uh, some areas where they still need help. But let's talk about some positive things here first. So they've announced some really cool features coming out in iOS version 13, which should be out in the fall. Uh, one of them, related to robocalls, is you will be able to send any call from somebody that you don't know, in other words, somebody who's not in your contact list, you can have it not even ring your phone. It'll just go straight to voicemail. In fact, my voicemail on my phone, I've already set my outgoing message on my phone to be something like, uh, hi, this is Carrie. I don't answer calls that I don't recognize. Leave a message and I'll call you back. Um, because I don't. Uh, at this point, I've gotten so many robocalls and so many, you know, political, charity, scam, marketers. Uh, I get so many calls from, from people I don't recognize. And it's a real pain because that means basically anybody I expect a call from, I need to put in my address book, which, you know, that's not so bad. But like, for instance, there's a, one of the doctors I go to uh, has an office line. They have an office number they, they advertise and you can call that number. But I, And I put that number in my contact list. However, their phone system is such that when they call out, when they call you, it's actually coming from a range of numbers. And it's not this, the one main number. Their, their system is not smart enough or not set up to show the one main number as the calling number when they call you. So sometimes when they call me to confirm appointments or, or whatever, I look at the number and I just don't answer because I, I don't recognize the number. Anyway, so that's a feature coming on iOS 13, which will be really nice. So basically, if that person's on your contact list, it won't. You can set it up so that your phone won't even ring. It'll just send them straight to voicemail. That'll be. I'd love that feature. Some of the other things they're doing. Uh, Apple's always been uh, good and better than Android in res with respect to permissions. So when you install an app on your phone, they want to access certain things. Like if you install a photo editing app, well, then they'll probably want access to your photos. If you install a calendar app, well, then they're going to want access to your calendar. If you install a mail app, they're going to want access to your contacts, your address book, um, things like that. And if you install a weather app, it's probably going to want access to your location so it can give you weather reports based on where you currently are. Uh, those kind of things. And those are privacy-related settings. Those are things that you don't want to give away to a flashlight app or a game or whatever. Even though they might ask for it, they'd be like, wait a minute, you don't need that. Uh, so uh, Apple has long had the capability of, 
of being able to go into their privacy settings after the fact and revoke those permissions, even if you gave them initially uh, to dial those things back, uh, which is great. Uh, and location services, they've actually had the capability to either turn it off, like never give this app my location, or always give this app my location, or uh, the one of the options they had for a long time was only give this app my location when it's the foremost app. Like, so if I want to check the weather forecast and I bring up the weather app and it's the one I'm looking at, it's the one that's on the, uh, the, the topmost app, then and only then will it get my location information, for example. Um, well, they're adding a new um, uh, option to this, which is a one-time location. So uh, the app comes up and you can force it to ask you every single time. So it does not get information in the background. It does not, um, if you give it to it once, it doesn't mean it's going to have it always. Uh, you can have it just to uh, get your app, uh, location once, and then it'll tell you. I can think of one a great example of that. So sometimes I get my haircut at um, one of these little chain cheapo haircut places and they've got a cool way for you to check in online of course to do that they want to know where you are because you might be near a different store at the current moment and they want to show you the closest place for you to check in well that would be a perfect application of i only want to tell you where i'm at when i want you to know and know a longer time and i guess the you know the the option of having it only know it when it's uh, only in my location when it's the foremost app would be good too but anyway um that's another uh, feature coming on ios 13. Speaking of contacts, another great idea, which has been a long time coming, and it would have been a great one of the uh, fix-it-already uh, things from the EFFs campaign, uh, is when you do share your contacts, like let's say with a Snapchat or Facebook or, or a mail app or whatever, when you do share your contacts, in your contacts, there's actually more than just name and address and birthday and uh, email address and phone number and those kind of things. There's a notes section. And a lot of people put some really personal information in that notes section. Uh, you, you know, maybe you put a social security number in there, or maybe you put, you know, their Wi-Fi password in the notes section, or I don't know, there's, there's people use it for lots of things. And what they don't realize though, is when they give access to their contacts, they get the notes too. But in the new iOS 13, they're going to cut that off, which is great. It's been a long time coming. They should have done this a long time ago, but I'm glad they're doing it. And so now when you do give access to your contacts on iOS 13, they will not get access to the notes. Another great feature that's going to cause some controversy, it already has caused some controversy, is sign in with Apple. And we've talked about this on the show. Uh, where, you know, you go to a website or you go to a, a, launch a brand new app on your phone and it says, well, you could create an account, you know, come up with, you know, give me your user ID, come up with a new, you know, a password, you know, then verify your email and all that kind of dumb crap. Or, you know, hey, just click this button that says sign in with Google or sign in with Facebook. Uh, websites do this a lot of times too. And yes, it's extremely convenient. It bypasses the need for all that. And Google or Facebook behind the scenes kind of helps you set up the account and gives them information. Well, it gives them a lot of information potentially. And it also is a two-way street. So now whenever you go to these apps or use these apps or use those websites where you did a sign in with Google or a sign in with Facebook, they know everything you're doing there. Potentially. Let's just, just assume. I would just assume that they, that they have access to whatever you're doing. It's a two-way street now. And, and you've now let Facebook or Google know that much more about you. Well, Apple has gone up with a new similar program called sign in with Apple, except it's totally focused on privacy. For one thing, Apple will know nothing about it. I mean, they'll, they'll, they will not, they will not get in for any information from you other than the bare, bare minimum necessary to set up the account. And they will not share any information with you, uh, with the, 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 the app or the, the service or the website that you're signing in with. All they will give them is your, your iCloud or your Apple 
name, whatever name you gave Apple when you signed up for that uh, account. And, and if necessary, they will give them an email. Now, when they ask for an email, you'll have a choice. You could either give them your Apple email, or you could say, hide my email address. And what Apple will do on your behalf behind the scenes, they will generate for you a unique email account for that one app or that one website or that one service automatically on your behalf. It'll be some gibberish. It'll be, you know, five, three F Z X two Y, you know, blah, blah, blah at iCloud.com or something. And behind the scenes, Apple will map that to your real email address so that when that thing you signed up for sends you an email, and invariably they will, they wouldn't have asked for it. Uh, when they send you promotions and marketing or whatever, it'll go to this anonymous email address that is that is only given to this one service. And then Apple will automatically route that to your regular Apple email address. Uh, therefore, uh, that company or whatever will not have your true email address. And... If you're getting too much crap from that company, you can go into your Apple account and say, cut off that company, cut off that, uh, that one special address, because there's a, every company, everything you did a sign in with has a unique address and you can stop all emails that, from that one address. Now, of course, that company may have also sold your email to somebody else. And if they did that, well, then you really want to shut it off. Right. So if they, you know, I've seen political stuff do this is, you know, you sign up for, uh, you donate money to somebody and then all of a sudden you're getting emails from tons of other related, you know, from the, from that party, from other, other related political groups. They, they sell you out. They give your address to everybody. Charities probably do it too. Everybody does it. Let's face it. They sell that information. So you will also be able to know based on an email address who sold you out and you can cut it all off. You can just cut it off at the source and just say, I don't want any more emails, uh, from that source and cut it off. So that's, that's, that's really cool. Now here's, here's some of the controversy around that. First of all, of course, that's a real poke in the eye to Facebook and Google. <laughs> um, and you gotta, you know, so you might wonder, well, why, first of all, why would these app developers even bother to put this on there? Why would they even bother to use this? They're probably getting a kickback from Facebook or Google, uh, to use their service. Uh, and Apple probably isn't doing that um, because Apple's making no money off of this. So, you know, what's the incentive? Well, uh, the way Apple's guidelines are going to be, because they control the software development process, that if you're a software developer and you offer any other third-party sign-in option, like sign-in with Google or sign-in with Facebook or Twitter or whatever else, then you must also offer sign-in with Apple. That's the controversial part. I think a lot of developers are going to not be happy about that. Um you know, who knows, maybe it'll even lead to like a class action loss of lawsuit or something. We'll see what happens, but you know, kudos to Apple for at least trying, uh, we'll see where this goes. I think it's a great idea. It's, you know, it's the kind of thing that Apple is in a position to do for its customers in order to help protect their privacy and give them more control. And, uh, I really applaud them doing that. All right. One more thing that they're offering that I think is really cool and if you're already an Apple user, you've probably seen this. They've got uh, on your phone or on your iPad, or uh, even if you sign into iCloud, they've got this find my friends and find my, you know, find my iPhone, for example, feature. So that if you lose your iPhone, uh, you can go to find my iPhone uh, on some other device or on the web, and it will tell you its last known location. Uh, that's cool. So, but yeah, there are, you know, there might be some privacy concerns around that uh, and some interesting technical challenges around that. Well, Apple is coming out with this new version of it. They're combining those services, and it sounds like maybe some others, uh, into this new generic Find My service. And they're doing some really cool technology to make it private and secure. 
And so uh, this is going to be kind of technical. I'm going to read this article from Wired. Um, but I want you just to get a, f- a flavor, a feel for how far Apple is going to make sure that this stuff is secure and private. Uh, and I'll try to explain a little bit either as we go or um, at the end about some of the more technical aspects of this. You don't have to understand it, but I, it's, I think it's uh, interesting to show the links to which Apple has thought about this and what they're going to, uh, what they're going through to protect uh, you, your privacy and make things secure. All right. From wired. Uh, here's the, here's what it says. What Apple executive Craig Federici described a new location tracking feature for Apple devices at the company's worldwide developer conference keynote on Monday. It sounded to the f- sufficiently paranoid, at least to be both a physical security innovation and a potential privacy disaster. But while security experts immediately wondered whether find my would also offer an opportunity to track unwitting users. Apple says it built the feature on a unique encryption system carefully designed to prevent exactly that sort of tracking, even by Apple itself. In upcoming versions of iOS and macOS, the new Find My feature will broadcast Bluetooth signals from Apple devices even when they're offline, allowing nearby Apple devices to relay their location to the cloud. That should help you locate your stolen laptop even if it's sleeping in a thief's bag. And it turns out that Apple's elaborate encryption scheme is also designed not only to prevent interlopers from identifying or tracking an iDevice from its Bluetooth signal, but also to keep Apple itself from learning device location locations even as it allows you to pinpoint yours. In a background phone call with Wired following its keynote, Apple broke down the privacy element, explaining how its encrypted and anonymous system avoids leaking your location data willy-nilly, even as your device broadcasts a Bluetooth signal explicitly designed to let you track your device. The solution to that paradox, it turns out, is a trick that requires you to own at least two Apple devices. Each one emits a constant changing key that nearby Apple devices use to encrypt and upload your geolocation data such that only other Apple device you own possesses the key to decrypt those locations. That system would obviate the threat of marketers or other snoops tracking Apple device Bluetooth signals, allowing them to build their own histories of every user's location. Quote, if Apple did things right, and there are a lot of ifs here, it sounds like this could be done in a private way, says Matthew Green, a cryptographer at Johns Hopkins University. Again, quoting, even if I tracked you walking around, I wouldn't be able to recognize you were the same person from one hour to the next, unquote. In fact, Find My's cryptography goes one step further than that, denying even Apple itself the ability to learn a, loca- a user's location based on their Bluetooth beacons. That represents a privacy improvement over Apple's older tools like Find My iPhone and Find My Friends, which don't offer such safeguards against Apple learning, learning your location. Okay, so we've talked in the past about private and public key systems, um, a really great encryption security innovation that came about in the 1970s, which normally in the days of symmetric cryptography, you had a, you had a password. So you would encrypt something with a password, then you would have to decrypt that with the same password. It was kind of a, a reversing function. You, you encrypt it with the key and then you decrypt it with the key. Uh, but the problem is that you'd have to then some, if you were sharing something with somebody else, you had to find some secret way to get them the key in the first place. Cause if they have the same key you do, if you're trying to send them the encrypted communications, the whole point is you, you're, you you do not have a way to do that. So if, if I was already in that person's presence, then I would just hand them or tell them the communications in the first place. Anyway, they came up with this thing, this asymmetric crypto, which had a two, like a two part key, a public part and a private part. Um, and the beauty of that is you can give everybody on the planet your public key and they can encrypt anything with that public key and only you can decrypt it with your private key. That's what Apple is doing here. They're using this public private key system 
such that you have two devices. And so you, you set them up somehow, and it's not clear yet how you do this, but you set up your two devices, let's say your laptop and your iPhone. Uh, and between the two of them, they do some sort of magic that creates a shared private key between them. Um, and then they come up with a set of public keys, not just one, but a set of rotating, changing public keys, any of which can be used to encrypt something such that the private key can decrypt it. Okay, I know that's kind of gobbledygook, but basically what that means is only these two devices can understand the information that's being sent between them. And and the other cool part of this is that Apple's ecosystem, since there's so many iPhones and iDevices out there, and they all have Bluetooth turned on for the most part, that when your device is stolen, and it's out in the wild somewhere, and it's hopefully asleep and not turned off. If it's turned off, I'm guessing this doesn't work. But if it's just asleep and it's being traveled around, it's sending out this little encrypted signal that contains its identity, um, not its location, because if it's fully asleep, it can't even access GPS. But it's sending out a little identifier in encrypted, uh, an encrypted way. And any other nearby Apple device that sees that says, oh, hey, someone's, someone's sending a beacon. And this is, they're probably all doing this for each other constantly. Um, they're all talking to each other, basically, and kind of saying, oh, there's a device over there, and here's my location because I'm turned on. So I'm going to tag that information with, the, with my current location because I'm close to it. And I'm going to send that up. And, I, and then Apple can't read it. No one else can read it until it finally gets sent. Uh, it, and it's stored out in the cloud. And then eventually when you go to your device and say, hey, I've lost my device or someone stole my device or I can't find it, you say, where is it? And then it goes and, and, and kind of goes through all the records of everything it knows about your devices. Uh, anybody who has reported basically seeing your device, any other Apple devices, oh, yeah, I saw that device on, on Thursday. It was here or an hour ago. It was over here. And that would let you know where it is. And even Apple can't can't figure out what that is. Only you can see it on your device. Anyway, all that to say that Apple really thinks this stuff through. And they're trying really hard to not know anything about you that they don't need to know. And to keep all that data private to yourself and still make these things work. Um, so you got to hand it to these guys. Um, they're really trying hard. And uh, there's some great new features coming out in iOS 13. So... Uh, look forward to, to having those in the fall. Now, of course, Apple's not perfect. Nobody is. And there have been a couple articles lately that I wanted to you know, bring your attention to as well. Uh, one is about uh, from Forbes about how so many apps on your iPhone are tracking you. Uh, and of course, these are not Apple apps. These are third-party apps. Um, and you'd think that, you know, or hope maybe that Apple could find some way to block this. But in reality, it's very hard to do. So let me read you a little bit from this article from Forbes. So much for that, what happens on your iPhone stays on your iPhone advertising campaign from Apple. I cannot help but note the irony that in reality, apps are monitoring your every move and grabbing data to help with advertising campaigns. Not that this should come as any great surprise. If you aren't paying for an app, then you are the product. However, the sheer number of apps involved, the number of trackers used per app, and both the volume and frequency of data collection is cause for concern. When the Wall Street Journal investigated the world of iPhone privacy controls, it discovered that, frankly, those controls are about as much use as a chocolate teapot. The Wall Street Journal reporters looked at some 80 iOS, app, all iOS apps, all recommended in the App Store as apps we love. What they found was all, bar one, were using third-party trackers to collect data about the user. Most were using more than one tracker, the average being four per app. What data is being collected by iOS apps? Would it surprise you to discover that as well as the details of your device, such as the model name and phone number, these trackers can grab your email address, the IP address that is allocated to your internet connection, and even your precise location at any given time. 
Everything from music streaming and weather apps through to news and storage apps are doing it. Maybe Apple should change the advertising slogan to invading your privacy. There's an app for that. Of course, it isn't just iOS apps that do this. Android apps are just as bad. And the article goes on. It gives a little bit more specificity. But uh, the reality is that any app you put on your phone is a potential snitch, right? This you have in your pocket or in your purse or whatever, this amazing supercomputer that is chock full of sensors uh, that is and telemetry that is constantly aware of where you are, you know, what you're doing, how long you spend on various websites or other apps, you know, it has your all your contacts and access to your emails and all these things. And if you're not careful, the apps that you install can gain access to some of these as well. And there's no reason to believe they wouldn't pour through that data and try to monetize it in some way. Now, Apple has been very good, as we talked about earlier, with allowing you to change those permissions, not only uh, and choose those level of access, not only when you install the app, but even after the fact, which is something Android has struggled with and is uh, trying to catch up with in that regard. A lot of times on Android, it's a one-time thing. You, you, when you, when you, uh, you install, it's an all or nothing. Uh, and then after the fact, you can't change it. Now they've, they've gotten better about that. But anyway, so these apps can be tattling on you and storing all sorts of information and selling it to third parties. Uh, I'm sure, you know, it's probably buried in their terms of service somewhere. But unfortunately, I, I think I've also mentioned in the show, when software developers build these apps, they're actually kind of cobbling together frameworks and widgets and different piece parts that other companies have gone to great trouble to create. Uh, good things. It's so you don't want to reinvent the wheel. So a lot of cases you, you pay for, or sometimes you don't, sometimes they're quote unquote free. You get these little piece parts that you can use to build your software application, but buried in those little piece parts are tracking things. And so it might even be that the developer of the app doesn't even realize what's going on. So this, I wouldn't say this is Apple's fault. There's only so much they can do. But uh, I will at least give you a, quick, uh, a few quick tips, and we've talked about these before. But, you know, obviously the very first thing is remove any apps you don't need. If you don't absolutely use these apps, take them off your phone. Um, you know, you can always re-download them later if you change your mind. Uh, but, you know, go through, do a calling, uh, and, and pull out any apps you don't absolutely need. Uh, you should also, uh, you know, you can go to setting on your iPhone. You can go to settings, and iPad too, by the way. Uh, settings and then privacy. And then under there, there's all sorts of things, including location services, contacts, calendars, all the different things that um, are privacy related that you might want to limit access to. And I encourage you at some point to, to take some time and go through each one of those and go into every category and say, all right, who have I given access to? The, uh, who have I given access to this information to? And do they really need it? Um, and turn some of them off uh, where you can. Uh, and finally, there is another one. You can go to settings underscore privacy. It's also done in there. I think underneath that list is something, uh, there's a thing called advertising. And if you go into advertising, there's a check box there for limit ad tracking. Of course, it doesn't say stop ad tracking. It says limit ad tracking, which is kind of a, yeah, I kind of wish Apple would fix that. I would love to have it just say no ad tracking. But um, anyway, uh, that, that, that will also help preserve a little bit more of your anonymity. All right, next up, we've got lots of stuff to get to this week. Uh, next up, I want to do a quick update on the Blue Keep uh, Windows Remote Desktop Protocol virus. Well, it actually hasn't become a virus yet. It's it's There's a vulnerability in older Windows systems, and that would be Windows 7, Windows Vista, and Windows XP, uh, that is just begging to be exploited and will be. It's only a matter of time. 
uh, and it's it's wormable. Uh, it's a worm. It's it's capable of being exploited by in worm fashion. And what that means is this can spread on its own with no human intervention whatsoever. They just have to be connected on the same network. Now, in practice, most people don't have their computers just sitting naked on the public internet. Usually, they're uh, you know in a business or in a home behind a, a Wi-Fi router or some sort of a router. And that router, built into that router, is a firewall uh, and, and some other technologies that are always on by default, which really means that somebody uh, on the public internet, like some hacker in Russia or China or in the United States or wherever, um, who is kind of snooping around the, the global internet looking for vulnerable devices, won't be able to, quote unquote, see your device. It'll be kind of hidden. Um, that said, we did find out last week that there's almost a million devices currently. I mean, there are search engines for this, the one called Shodan in particular, where you can actually go and search the web and look for vulnerable computers in certain ways. And the, this particular vulnerability with uh, the remote, de remote desktop protocol, which allows you to kind of log into your computer from afar and control it, uh, there's a vulnerability there and you can kind of sniff around the internet and find vulnerable systems. And there's at least a million of them out there right now today. And realize that a lot of these devices are not what you typically think of as computers. Windows XP and Windows 7 uh, runs in the background on, you know, some digital signage and ATMs and, uh, and some other kind of devices that you don't really think of as computers. But they are, and they're, they're running Windows. And if they're on the public Internet, then they may be vulnerable. So Microsoft has uh, begged everybody to patch their, these old systems. They've created fixes for these, uh, but they're not going to auto-update, so you're going to have to do it manually. So if you have an older system that is... Uh, on the internet or in a, a network of computers where the other thing is if, if, if you're on a, even a home network or a company network and some other computer within that network is compromised, then this will spread throughout that network. Um, so uh, you can go to my blog on Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. At, at this point, it's probably the most recent article. Um, if not, it's the second to most recent, uh, where I give you links and help on how to get those updated. So I recommend you do that. But that's not what I'm here to talk about today. There's a new one. Uh, there's a new uh, kind of malware out there called Goldbrute um, that is also exploiting the same remote desktop protocol. But this time, it's doing it by what's called credential stuffing. And I wanted to kind of bring this up so I can explain that term. So credential stuffing is where you basically brute force, you, you take a whole bunch of known password login information that you get from one place and try it someplace else. So if you've ever had a data breach at um, you know, a bank or a Target or Home Depot or one of these places where uh, you had your uh, username and password stolen and the bad guys managed to break it and figure out what your old password was, they will very often, it's become an automated process now, and this is, a, this is an example of that, where they will take these lists of known usernames and passwords and try them everywhere else they can in a fully automated fashion. And that is what this one is doing, and it's doing it with um, remote desktop protocol. So if you had remote desktop set up on these computers and you had a weak password or a password that was used somewhere else in a data breach, this malware is searching the internet for instances of computers that, that are using this with known passwords. Uh, and that's what we, again, that's what we call credential stuffing. So again, uh, make sure you're using a password manager, make sure you're using unique, random, long, strong passwords for all of your passwords. Make sure you're using two-factor authentication everywhere you can. And in this particular case, with remote desktop protocol, uh, make sure that your system is up to date and patched. If you've got Windows 10, you should be fine. But the older ones, Windows 7, Windows XP, Windows Vista, uh, if you've got those running, then you know, to consider updating to Windows 10, first of all, because those other systems are no longer supported. 
which means that except in rare cases like this one, they are not getting software updates to fix vulnerabilities. Uh, I would seriously consider just moving to, to Windows 10. Otherwise, make sure you at least get those systems updated. Uh, again, go to Firewalls, Don't Stop Dragons, and look for my blog article on, on, on this Windows worm uh, that will give you further instructions and tell you where to go find those software patches for those uh, older systems. All right, so now for our final story of the week, which will lead into our tip of the week. And I'm going to call this the tale of two browsers. Uh, it was the worst of browsers. It was the best of browsers. <laughs> and uh, we're going to compare and contrast uh, Google's Chrome browser, which is the most popular browser on the planet by far. I think it's used by some 60 plus percent uh, of people around the world. And Firefox, which is my chosen browser in which I'm going to recommend that you change to if you haven't already. But this will help give you a little bit of uh, incentive. So I'm going to read you two different articles here. One, uh, the first one is from 9 to 5 Google, and it's about a change that Google has recently announced that they are so far sticking to, which will significantly hobble your ability as a Chrome user to block ads and prevent tracking. Um, So let me just quickly read this article from 9 to 5 Google. Back in January, Google announced a proposed change to Google's extension system called Manifest V3 that would stop current ad blockers from working efficiently. In a response to the overwhelmingly negative feedback, Google is standing firm on Google Chrome's ad blocking changes, sharing that current ad blocking blocking capabilities will be restricted to enterprise users. And enterprise users are basically businesses, big, big, big businesses. Um, Manifest V3 comprises a major change to to Chrome's extension system, including a revamp to the permission system and a fundamental change to the way ad blockers operate. In particular, modern ad blockers like uBlock Origin, which is the one I recommend, and Ghostery use Chrome's web request API to block ads before they're even downloaded. And by the way, we're going to talk about some technical terms here. Don't worry about it too much. Just go listen for the gist of this. With the Manifest V3 proposal, Google deprecates the, or basically end of life's, uh, the web request API's ability to block a particular request before it's loaded. And if you, as you would expect, power users and extension developers alike criticize Google's proposal for limiting the user's ability to browse the web as they see fit. Now, months later, Google has responded to some of the various issues raised by the community, sharing more details on the changes to permissions and more. The most notable aspect of the response, however, is a single sentence buried in the text clarifying that their changes to ad blocking and clarifying their changes to ad blocking and privacy blocking extensions. Quote, Chrome is deprecating the blocking capabilities of the web request API in Manifest V3, not the entire web request API. And then it says parenthetically, though blocking will still be available to, available to enterprise deployments. Unquote. Google is essentially saying that Chrome will still have the capability to block unwanted content, but that will be restricted to only paid enterprise users of Chrome. This is likely to allow enterprise customers to develop in-house Chrome extensions, not for ad blocking usage. For the rest of us, Google hasn't budged on their changes to content blockers, meaning that ad blockers will need to switch to a less effective rules-based system called declarative net request. One of the original concerns of switching to this system was the fact that Chrome currently imposes a limit of 30,000 rules, while popular ad-blocking rule lists like EasyList use upwards of 75,000 rules. In response, Google claims that they're, lo- that they're looking to increase this number depending on performance tests, but couldn't commit to anything specific. The lead developer of uBlock Origin, which is, again, that's the privacy blocking thing that I've recommended, 
The, leader de- the lead developer of uBlock Origin, Raymond Hill, has commented on the situation both to the Register and uBlock Origin's GitHub, pointing out that allowing ad blockers goes completely against Google's business model. Quote, Google's primary business is incompatible with unimpeded content blocking. Now that Google Chrome product has achieved high market share, the content blocking concerns, as stated in its 10K filing, are being tackled, unquote. Google themselves has even admitted as such in their recent SEC Form 10K filing by Alphabet, uncovered by Hill, in which ad blocking extensions are labeled as a, quote, risk factor to Google's revenues. And it goes on to quote the actual 10K. I'm not going to get into that. But okay, let me just cut it off here. So basically what Google is now that they're the dominant web browser is kind of abusing that position to protect its business model. Google, Google's business model is advertising. That is how they make 90% of their money. Uh, and to do that effectively and to make the most possible money out of that, they need to know as much about you as possible and they need their ads to be shown. So, so having these ad blockers and tracking blockers be able to cut into their business model. This looks, that's what this looks like is they've decided they're not going to allow that anymore. And so since they wrote the browser, they control the browser themselves, the world's most popular web browser. They're changing the underlying technology that allows that ad blocking and privacy black privacy protections to work and only allowing a much less effective version of that, which is going to kill truly effective blockers like uBlock Origin from protecting your privacy. So that's article one. That's the, that's the, that's the worst of browser story. Now let's, let's uh, go to a completely different story about Firefox and you'll see uh, how these two compare. All right. So this is an article from uh, Sophos uh, on their naked security blog. And it says the following years in the making, the latest version of Firefox version 67.0.1 has finally unleashed a full, a fully fledged version of Mozilla's much touted enhanced tracking protection, ETP privacy system. Mozilla's reached this point through so many smaller jumps that Firefox users could be forgiven for being confused about what ETP adds to the browser. That's not already there. Its beginnings can be traced back to 2015 with the appearance of tracking protection in Firefox private browsing mode, a way of making it harder for advertisers to monitor users by setting cookies that track them across websites. Firefox 57 in 2017 started migrating this layer into the main browser, which Mozilla said it planned to make a default setting for future releases, a far from easy undertaking given how easily anti-tracking can break the bits of websites users value. As outlined in its launch blog, it's now doing that in earnest by integrating a tracker block list compiled by its partner, Disconnect Me. It's hard to say how exhaustive this is, but with 2,567 domains in the block list, including a large number connected to Google, it is surely a show of intent by Mozilla. However, before users rush to update Firefox, there are a few issues worth paying attention to. That uh, The first being that ETP will only be turned on by default for users who download Firefox anew. Uh, anyone updating a current installation will need to enable default blocking manually via going to the options, then privacy and security, then enable custom blocking and tick all the boxes. Clicking on change block list reveals that there are also two blocking lists, the strictest of which number two might cause problems on some websites. Users can see which trackers have been detected for any sites by clicking on the purple shield icon in the address bar. 
Arguably, Firefox, Firefox's standard, strict, and custom blocking levels have become a bit confusing, which is why it's worth reading the company's detailed explanation to understand what each signifies. And it gives a link there to uh, this thing. And it goes on and on. There's actually several things that are included in this new version of Firefox. The point is, Firefox is, like Apple, doubling down on privacy and anti-tracking technologies. And they don't make their money off advertising. There is no inherent conflict of interest with this browser. Um, and so that leads me to the tip of the week. And I'm sure I have probably mentioned this before, but hopefully this gives you new incentive, new ammunition um, to convince others, perhaps, to make the change away from Chrome and towards Firefox as your web browser of choice. There's just, there's just no other way to put it. Firefox is taking all sorts of great new steps and they're adding more all the time to protect your privacy. Uh, they're giving you much more control over your data um, and your whole web browsing experience. And just to give you another idea that this ad blocking technology, first of all, it, it's, it's saving you a lot of time and data. Websites are, are hugely bloated with these ads. And if you cut out all the ads, all the, all the fat, and leave just the parts you care about, which these ad blockers will do for you, these web pages download much, much faster. And if you're on a phone and you've got a data plan, that means it's also using a lot less data. Um, this change with Chrome uh, is basically not allowing you to do that, or at least not nearly as effectively. And that's, you know, I don't, I don't like that. <laughs> and I, I would hope you wouldn't either. And I'm really actually surprised that Google is sta standing so firm on this. With there's been such a backlash, um, we'll see. They haven't they haven't you know really laid the hammer down yet. They may still change their minds on this, but um, it's just obvious that there's a conflict of interest here. And Google and Google's Chrome browser wants to know everything about you, possible can. There have been other slip ups in the past too, uh, like where they conveniently signed you into the web browser whenever you signed into any other Google service. So if you went to Google to check your mail on the web, uh, at, for a time, Google said, oh, well, let's, let's just sign you into Chrome browser completely, which basically means, hey, Google, watch everything I do on the browser, not just the things I do on the Google sites. And they got a lot of backlash of that. And they actually did back down on that one a little bit. But it's just, it's just obvious at this point that, that, Google is not there to protect your privacy. It, it's a very secure browser. Google has done some great work in the realm of security. Um, unfortunately, for privacy, it's just a nightmare. So uh, my tip of the week, my suggestion to you is to, first of all, switch away from Chrome and go to Firefox. Now, if you're on an Apple uh, and you're using Safari, that's actually a, a pretty good browser too in terms of privacy. They're more restrictive in terms of allowing you to install plugins like uBlock Origin and, and some of those things. They have finally allowed some of those things to go in. It's a little more clunky. Uh, so if you're using Safari right now, um, you know, and you really like Safari, that's okay. Um, but uh, I would still recommend using Firefox. Uh, it's every bit as good as Safari, and it gives you more flexibility. Um, and there may, there may come a day when Safari um, is just as good, in my view. Uh, but, of course, you can't do Safari on Windows. So that's another reason I like Firefox. It's, it's available on both Windows and Mac, uh, and, and iOS and Android, for that matter. So um, that's the tip of the week. Ditch Chrome and install Firefox. <laughs> All right. Well, we had a lot to catch up on. I, that was longer than I expected. 
But thanks for hanging in there with me. There's a lot of great info there. Um, there's actually some stories I skipped, which we'll probably come back to. We've got a great interview coming up for you next week with Eva Galperin from the EFF about stalker wear, or sometimes called spouse wear. A really interesting uh, interview about a very creepy topic. So uh, I recommend you check that out next week. We've got some other great interviews coming up as well. I'm trying to get Lawrence Abrams from Bleeping Computer back. I've got uh, John Graham coming, the CTO of Cloudflare. Uh, he'll be coming up as well. So lots of great interviews coming up in, in the near future. As always, check out the, the website, firewallsdon'tstopdragons.com. You can see my blog there. You can sign up for my newsletter. Uh, you can get some more info on the book. I've also got some other great resources there, just some kind of like high-level uh, things I like uh, to make sure that everybody is aware of, some of my like favorite, most favorite privacy and security uh, resources. You can also jump from there to go to Patreon if you'd like to help me to help you and help others. Um, I would very much appreciate that. You can go to patreon.com and search for Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons, or you can also find links to that on my website as well. I would very much appreciate that. Uh, tell your friends, tell others, uh, help me spread the word. Um, the more people that we can protect, the more people that protect themselves, the better off we will all be. That'll do it. That'll wrap it up this week. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, until next week, everybody, stay safe out there, and don't get caught with your drawbridge down.